Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am so happy to have Roger Nelson on the program. Roger runs the Global Consciousness Project, an international collaboration studying mass consciousness. He conducted psi research at the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Laboratory called PEAR from 1980 to 2002. And while at Princeton created the Global Consciousness Project, we'll refer to it as the GCP in 1997. Interests in psychology, physics, philosophy, and the arts facilitate his research at the edges of what we know. His focus is the subtle interconnections that define an emerging humanity. Thanks for coming to the program, Roger. It's my pleasure. Well, let's. Um, I'm so interested in, in hearing more about the Global Consciousness Project, and I love the title of it, by the way. And so how did your interest in researching global consciousness begin? I mean, even as a child, were you religious or spiritual or anything like that? Well, um, my family was not religious, but it was, uh, you know, spiritually sound. Yes. Um, believed in doing things right or correctly or whatever you want to say. But I was, um, when I was a kid, I got interested in Eastern stuff, Eastern religions. And because I wanted, at one point, I thought, oh, I need to learn a martial art like judo or jujitsu. So I went to the library and found no books on those things. But I found a book on yoga and learned from that about uh, meditation and about a kind of respect for the world we live in. And very uh, profound. The book that I, uh, treasured so much was written by an, an Indian uh, from India and a German. So it was a wonderful combination of uh, West and East, but had wisdom in it. Like if you're um, serious about mm, yoga, then you should become a vegetarian unless you're an Eskimo. <laughs> in that case, you need some fat. <laughs> Love it. And I, and it was, uh, that, I needed that. And then I uh, found a book called, um, I think it was Parapsychology After 60 Years, but written by J.B. Ryan, one of the greats in early um, parapsychology. And that book uh, inspired me and some of my friends to be, uh, you know, to do the scientific research. It was outlined, you know, uh, the steps were clear and so forth. So we did. And what we found was deviations that shouldn't be there, but they weren't you know, like blow you out of the water. Right. It was like just right for somebody with a budding scientific consciousness. It wasn't unbelievable, 
but it was in fact remarkably strong, clear evidence that something is going on between, you know, between what we think of as the mind and the world. You know, we were making connections with each other, or we were making changes in the way some delicate, balanced, delicately balanced um, device would operate. So that was the kind of background which led me eventually to um, stray from my job at uh, in uh, teaching psychology in uh, Vermont to Princeton University, where they were starting up a lab which ultimately was called the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research uh, Laboratory. And that, that has the acronym PEAR. So the PEAR lab um, was a, a so, somewhat unwanted stepchild of a great university. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, there were quite a few people, faculty and uh, some of the administration who were not happy to have people studying parapsychology you know, woo right. stuff in the engineering school. In the engineering school, <laughs> yes. But um, the boss, my boss, the guy who set up the place was, uh, he was a dean of the School of Engineering. So one of the highest officers of uh, a major university. And uh, he was a great uh, a politician, very smart guy, very well-spoken. He was a rocket scientist, literally. That his real research wow. was in... Uh, electric propulsion, which is now being used to propel, um, you know, uh, little little spaceships across the void between here and Mars or Jupiter or whatever. Anyway, he was tough and they couldn't get rid of us. Uh, <laughs> right. somebody, so, somebody said, uh, there is no there there. And uh, <laughs> Bob said, uh, who's to know? who's there we're looking at. <laughs> I love it. What a great answer. I meant to ask you, do you know Dr. Jill Blakeway? No, I know Okay, because interestingly, I had her on the show quite a while ago, and she was talking about all of your research. So then when I found you and invited you to the program, I was so excited. But um, yeah, she was talking, which what we're going to talk about is the random number generator. But um so anyway, <laughs> let's let's start there. I think that's where to start, right? Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, the when we really want to talk about the Global Consciousness Project, it has its beginnings in the laboratory yes. research where you had one person sitting um, maybe a meter or two away from a box that had what's called a random number generator in it, generating random numbers. Yes. And uh, the, way, the way we usually ran that experiment it was to let the random number generator generate ones and zeros. And we would count 200 of them. We would count how many ones there are in a 200-bit trial, a 200-number trial in one second. So these things operate quickly. So you can build up a lot of numbers in a hurry. And what we asked people do, to do was to get higher numbers or lower numbers, and they could do it. Not all the time, and not a whole lot, you know, but enough so that after you do the experiment again and again, the totals add up and you finally get to um, a very strong and persuasive argument that when people, when people wish for higher numbers, they can get the higher numbers. Right. It's, 
that's kind of amazing and very difficult to explain from uh, this point of view of physics. So we did that kind of experiment with a lot of different people, a lot of different conditions. And eventually we uh, shrank down the size of the random number generators so much that we could take them out into the field and do what we called field REG experiments, field reg. And these amounted to taking a random number generator into a group situation say some uh, group of people who were uh, doing a ritual, uh, doing something like pagan rituals, honoring the moon or right. uh, the solstices or something, or take it to a concert where a really large number of people like transfixed by beautiful music that they love or other, all kinds of other um, situations where people would come together in a kind of group consciousness Okay, and what we found was that in those situations where there was a kind of resonance and coherence, a connection among all those people in a group, we would see deviations with the data instead of wandering in a kind of flat line uh, according to the expectation for random numbers like this, they would take off and go off outside the boundaries of the statistical envelope that people call statistically significant, you know? Yes. We would get data from those kinds of situations that often would be unlikely to happen by chance on, by 100 to one odds or 1,000 to one odds. And again, we did a lot of those experiments and gradually the case would build up to really be a really strong indication that there is such a thing as group consciousness and it has an effect in the world very uh, specialized world, of course, these random electronic random number generators, but they're, um, they, they are part of the real world. world. Right. And what we think and wish for, and in the case of the field experiments, we might not even know the device is there. Nevertheless, if we attune ourselves to each other and become co coherent and resonant within a group, then that will change the operation of the random number generator enough so that it gradually builds up to a strong, a compelling case that the group consciousness has done something. Now you can easily imagine the next step is, so what about a really big group? What about the whole world, you know? And what if you had a whole lot of random number generators? So um, I gathered resources and uh, talked to people. Uh, we. Uh, together to find a, a really wonderfully uh, well done experiment that that's still running. This was 1997 <laughs> that we were designing wow. this. It started collecting data in 1998. At its peak, there were something like 70 or 75 uh, random number generators in a network spread all over the world in every continent but Antarctica. We never never got one there. <laughs> <laughs> We tried to get it. You will, I'm sure. We had two or three people try to get one on a, a satellite or a, a, a moonshot, but that never worked out. Mm. There were always too many, you know, highly refined engineering experiments to compete against. But um, what we what we ultimately did then was run a network of random number generators spread around the world continuously. So they were. Uh, generating data 24-7, day after day, month after month for, it's now 23 years. 
And um, we had a very, very basic question we wanted to ask, um, which was inspired it to some degree by Tehar de Chardin, the Jesuit priest so many uh, of, you know, people were listening to us uh, will have heard of. He was a, not just a priest, he was also a scientist, a paleontologist, and uh, one of the most poetic writers about science that I'm aware of. He, um, so he said, basically, that after all the evolutionary stages, we've come to human beings. Sometimes we think of ourselves as the pinnacle of evolution. But uh, Tehar said, we're not. There's another stage where there's more to, <laughs> more to do, another form of another stage of evolution to go through. And that evolution, he thought, would um, result in us, we human beings, would become a noosphere as a kind of layer of intelligence around the earth, a, a layer of knowing, just like an atmosphere, but it was made of knowing and instead of oxygen and nitrogen and so forth. So interesting. very interesting. And is this what the group consciousness would, kind, would, would cause is this layer of knowing? Yeah, my thought was maybe Tehar is right. And maybe, just maybe we're on the way there so much so that there's a kind of mm, inchoate, a kind of uh, beginning version of that global consciousness, the noosphere that he envisioned already in existence. So I hypothesize that um, just as in the group consciousness experiments, if there was something that brought us all together, brought really large numbers of people into the same mm, thoughts and emotions into a kind of coherent state, then we might expect, as we saw in the, in the group consciousness experiments, we might see deviations in the data from these, this wide, worldwide network of random number generators. And so we set up an experiment that was very well-defined, very scientific in the sense that we made a prediction ahead of time uh, for every one of the um, events that kind of, that, you know, imposed, it's the, uh, every event that imposed itself on us was right. important as the kind of thing that would bring people together. Things like uh, explosions and beginnings of war and things like celebrations of New Year's or the Kumela in India where 20 million people uh, come together in a, and try to bathe away their sins in the, in, in the Ganges. <laughs> so um, we, the protocol was straightforward. We decided that this was an event, some event really should gather us together in this way that we're talking about. And we would define when does it begin and when does it end? And we would define what kind of statistical analysis will we do for the data in that segment of time? So that was registered at before the data, before anybody saw the data. And uh, often uh, when we knew the event was going to occur, like New Year's, we would, um, you know, register it, you know, before the data were collected, right. much less uh, analyzed. And so over the years, we would see maybe two or three events a month. And we built, gradually built up over 17 years, a database of 500 of these rigorous tests of the hypothesis that when a large number of people come together in a kind of coherent fashion, 
we will see uh, changes in the data corresponding to the period of time of that group or global consciousness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so well, like 9-11, let's talk about oh, that. 9-11 for sure. Yes. Yeah, that was, um, you know, what, what one of those events that's a surprise. So we didn't know um, that it was going to happen. And so we had to define the beginning and the end after the data were already collected, but then before looking at the data. So uh, 9-11 was mm, highly significant, but it was also such a powerful event in, um, in the history of uh, the experiment that we did, um, four of us did a, a lot of um, analysis, looking at uh, different measures, not only the one that was set up for the prediction, but other measures uh, that were you know, related but independent. And uh, things like um, how <laughs> the count of uh, words in news articles, things, all kinds of stuff that was kind of independent. And we found that whatever we, however we looked at it, there was a, an extreme and uh, statistically awesome effect. Um, among other things, we found that the original prediction which was only four hours, like from the beginning to the, la- to, to the time the second tower collapsed. That was not enough time to, to capture the, what happened really. The data changed radically at beginning a little bit before, something like mm-hmm. four hours before the first plane hit and continued to be uh, highly divergent for three days. So it's like not just a... <laughs> a little bit at the time. And this sort of, this I think reflects what's really going on. This is not just an event at, um, at the World Trade Towers in New York City or the Pentagon in Washington. This is an event in the consciousness space of people all over the world. So we were seeing we were the data coming from a world spanning network uh, not very surprisingly reflected the consciousness state of people from all over the world, a global consciousness. It was profoundly impressive and a kind of important, I guess, in making us um, pretty sure that we're, what we're doing made sense. This was something like three, four years into the, no, not even that long, three years into the, you know, the life of the experiment. Mm-hmm. And, but it encouraged us um, to keep on, keep on keeping yeah. on. <laughs> well, it seems to me that it's just one more piece of evidence that consciousness, there's continuity of consciousness. You know, you look at the many NDEs, the STEs, the remote viewing, telepathy, power of prayer, which is exactly what you're talking about. All the sheer death experiences, um, pa- um, past lives told by, you know, Ian Stevenson's work, you know, children and, and others, you just put it all together and there's, yeah. you know, and it's just one more piece. Do you agree with that? Oh, I absolutely do. Yeah. I'm, I have a, a book in English that's called Connected. Yes, this, this, that we're the, all connected. Yeah. The emergence of global consciousness. I'm, you know, it's like a 
goes a little bit into the interpretive realm beyond uh, the data, but I think the implications are really strong. Right. We are connected, and when um, and you know it's sort of it's demonstrable in various kinds. The field REG experiments I was talking about, mm -hmm. and then later in a bigger version in the global consciousness um, experiment, we are when we do connect, and there are uh, reasons. I mean, there are circumstances that make us connect, whether we know it or not. When we're all pointed in the same direction, it matters. We become one in a way that's very like the kind of thing that the sages in every culture and every age have talked about. Right. When we become one, we are powerful. We are so powerful that we change these tiny little instruments. We make them produce more ones than zeros or right, something. <laughs> right, right. We don't even know how, but we do it. Yeah. So what do you feel the implications to humanity um, kind of getting away from, you know, the exact experiments, but the deep down heartfelt, you know, <laughs> world, um, the implications are? Yeah. Well, I think we, uh, the first is what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. We are connected. And we are connected at an unconscious level. Say so we are connected, but we don't know about it consciously. We think about it sometimes. We read and we listen to the sages or, you know, the wise ones or uh, all kinds of people will stand on a stage nowadays and talk about how we're all connected. And yet we don't perceive it directly. What I yes. think, one of the implications, one of the things I would like to see or like for this to mean is that we should practice, that we should think deeply about the business of being connected and think about how we can raise our unconscious level of connection up, up into consciousness so that we can begin to do what a lot of people think of as conscious evolution. I think we're not only on the verge of being able to do that, but we must do that because we're on the verge of killing ourselves and everything on the planet. And uh, so we're in a, we're not, things have, you know, circumstances have conspired to bring us to a precipice. And that over that precipice are two possibilities. We can fall or we can fly. Right. And I think the global consciousness evidence really says we can fly. All we have to do is learn how. <laughs> right, right. But we also have some clues about how. Uh, in the course of the ex uh, 500 experiments, we looked at a lot of different kinds of events. And that allows us to do something like categorization. We can categorize the events into big ones and small ones, um, into ones that are positive in nature, you know, celebrations or versus negative, like accidents and terrorist attacks. And we, um, we can uh, categorize the events and, uh, to um, represent what emotions seem to be manifested or brought into being during the course of those events. And so there are events which, um, you know, make people happy and make people feel loving and make people feel compassion and so forth. And what, what we have found is in all those um, comparisons, those categories, 
allow some insight into what's going on and who we are. But they, the ones that have to do with the emotions like compassion and love, those are the most powerful of the, of the circumstances mm -hmm. that we see. The biggest effects come from, um, not from uh, accidents and terrorist attacks, although they're exceptions. <laughs> yes. They come instead from events where people are deliberately manifesting and encouraging each other to feel compassion. Isn't that oh, fine? Wow. Yeah. wow. So um, that's, just, that's the step that we are prepared to take, that we can take, that the data say we should take. Yes. <laughs> De develop your compassion. Develop your ability to empathize with other people, to feel compassion for other people. Um, and by the way, I think it's, it's not a surprise that compassion is so powerful. After all, it is an, um, an emotion or a state of mind that brings us together. You feel compassion for others. They feel compassion for you. So we, it, it is the recipe for coming together and becoming one. So Roger, how has this, this research, and I know it's been going on for a long time, but how has it changed you, how you walk in life? <laughs> Uh, I'm, uh, that's an interesting question. I think it has made me a little more compassionate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. And I'm, uh, it's made me a, a live in the world, world of gratitude more. Yeah. I am grateful for having had the accidental opportunity uh, to do this kind of work. I cannot imagine it, something I would rather have done. So I'm now, you know, long retired, though I still keep my hand in. I'm helping develop GCP 2.0, which is a kind <laughs> of continuation, which will be much bigger and uh, will we'll have um, the ability to ask many uh, more refined questions. It sort of right. builds, builds on all the things that we found, um, but which need more study to understand. Mm -hmm. So... So you, you just said something, you just said something about accidentally. Do you really think it was an accident that you ended <laughs> up doing this kind of work? Well, let me tell you, one of my uh, favorite chapter titles in uh, the, uh, the um, Global Consciousness Connected book is Designed by Coincidence. <laughs> Love and, and I, I, I described Designed it. Designed by coincidence. Yeah. Um, I, just let me give, uh, give a couple of examples. Oh, wonderful. I first thought about, um, really this seriously thought about making a kind of world-spanning network while I was at Esalen. I met a couple of people in, in, the, you know, in, in the tubs at Esalen. It's yes. really nice. Um, and in the showers, we our conversation went to what they were doing. There's a young and beautiful couple. They were publicizing, uh, they were traveling to publicize a gathering of people, as many as could possibly be brought into uh, synchronization to all meditate together um, on uh, January maybe 23rd, I now don't remember the date, um, 
in what was called a Gaia mind, Gaia being the earth, you know, Gaia's mind, mm -hmm. Gaia mind meditation. And I thought, well, now I will just ask all of my friends who do this kind of work, please take data during this Gaia mind meditation. Right. Yeah. And sure enough, we got 101 odds, you know, that during that period of time that we would have had so much deviation from natural random numbers. And then, and then that was in 1997. And, and later in 1997, Princess Diana was uh, killed in a car accident in Paris. We didn't have any network running at the time, but we could set up a gathering of data for the funeral ceremonies, which we knew all about and which were expected to gather the attention of not millions, not hundreds of millions, but billions of people. It was said at the time, there might be 2 billion people paying attention to what's happening during this funeral ceremony. Now that would be a global consciousness event. Mm. So I asked my friends, gathered the data, sent the data to me, put it together. And sure enough, there was a big, strong, highly significant departure from what's supposed to be random. And that led to building the, the network for the whole world. It was, um, now, I think you had asked me a question. I got. <laughs> well, I was just, I just asked, um, well, first of all, do you really feel like it was an accident? But. Um... Oh, yeah, the design by coincidence. So, so the next thing happened, I wanted to um, have a logo or, you know, kind of a beautiful picture of the earth. I was going to make a global network. And um, so I was looking online and I came across a site called For Me Lab. And it was run by a guy named John Walker. And he was running an experiment that I had helped design with somebody else two or three years earlier, or maybe even more. And but John Walker was running this experiment, which is an online random number generator experiment. And I said, wow, this is really cool. And, uh, and then I told him what I was, you know, uh, that I was interested in one of his beautiful earth pictures. And um, I was pl planning this network and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'd like to help you with that. Yes. <laughs> and so John, who was the, had been the CEO of a huge uh, corporation, uh, actually funded the first part of the, um, the, the you know, de development stuff. <laughs> and also has, is a consummate techie and he's been running Random number generators in our <laughs> network for now 23 years. Yes, yes. So that was a coincidence. There's a lot of other ones, but um, I call it those synchronicity, people, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Synchronicity is meaningful coincidence. Yes. Yeah, yes. there's there's a lot of stuff like that. I can say it this way. The steps in the path that led me to where I am now over a period of 20, 30, 40 years, something like that were don't look uh, random. They don't look accidental. <laughs> they, yeah. And they look like a kind of a set of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. Yes. Yes, it's, it's hard to, or it's hard for me to think that really anything is random because what's the point if, if things are random? But, but with that, um, so let's talk a little bit about children. What are the implications or what do you feel that we could do 
to help encourage children to use the knowledge that has been gleaned from this from this research. Raise them in love and compassion and protect them from developing fear and anxiety yes. and those kinds of things. Give them um, every opportunity for to satisfy or develop their curiosity, their constructive, creative nature. All of these things are absolutely essential for the next generation. You know, probably, and I do, certainly uh, large numbers of um, people for whom these ideas are just natural. Of course, we should let children be children. Of yes. course, they must play because that's how they learn to be, you know, creative human beings. And um, the business of reading and writing and arithmetic, that, that'll come along. Those are tools, but the original um, basic uh, human, or maybe just a life uh, tendency is to be, uh, to be curious, to be um, connected to the world, uh, to love the beauty that you see in flowers and, and when you're rolling in the grass <laughs> and in the eyes of your friends, you know? These are the kinds of things. So true. It's so funny you say that. I was just thinking today about a teacher that... Um, we went to the Waldorf School, which is a beautiful, you know, a beautiful school philosophy. And um, we switched schools because anyway, it's a long story. But <clears throat> so my son had written something and the teacher said something like, well, this is not it's not an MLN format or whatever that is MLN format. <laughs> you know, this was like in fifth or sixth grade. And I just went I just. I just thought of this today. I just wanted to say to her, well, that's great that he doesn't know MLA and your kids do, but do they know the, the songs that the butterflies are singing? Do they know how to make vegetable soup with the community? Do they know how, to, which of course they do, but I was just thinking of all those really important things that, you know, that we need to spend more time on, especially with our very young. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm struck by the choice of the term MLA format. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's probably old fashioned at this point, but it was. Who something. would know what that means? <laughs> Certainly not a sixth grader. Yeah, exactly. And if he or she does, then it's, it's, it's probably a problem. even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Exactly. <laughs> so funny. Wow. So what... Um, we have to wrap it up. It seems like we just started talking, but so yeah. what words of wisdom do you have for the world? And if you could um, end with the quote that we talked about, do you have it in front of you? Because I don't, I thought I did, <laughs> but oh my goodness. Okay, uh, great. Well, let's, I, let's... I think it, I could probably find it fairly readily. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I think I can too. So I'll oh, do that you as, as you yeah. share your words of wisdom, yes. All right. Well, uh, my words of wisdom are to, you know, stay as young as you can in, in your uh, mind, in your consciousness, in your attitude to, toward the world. Be as curious as, as your nature allows if there's nothing getting in the way. Yes. <laughs> no, if there's no MLA format, your curiosity <laughs> should be free to reign. 
Yeah. And your create oh creativity. People uh, are are naturally creative. We are born to uh, and to make art and to make music, to dance. And I actually think that uh, these are the things that will most matter, that will ultimately save us, the arts. People who dance are healthier people. People mm -hmm. who sing are doing the most basic and fundamental uh, root structure of all that we are. We, we sang before we spoke. Yes. You know, yes. We, we, we beat drums and we danced before we actually um, created language. I'm sure of it. Mm -hmm. and, <clears throat> these, and so um, I think we need to unhide the, the nature, unhide the being that is uh, trapped inside a kind of highly educated <laughs> um, so true. creature. Yeah. And, and not that there's anything wrong with education, but it should not supplant the wild and wonderful creativity that is our birthright. Yeah. So we should, um, each of us individually, try to make sure that we um, take some time each day for thinking outside the box, for being creative in uh, whatever endeavors that come by. And I think, um, we, we need to just allow ourselves to believe in a, a world of magic because we live in a world of magic. It's just that so much of um, our technical achievement has conspired to hide that from us in large part. Now, I will look. Uh, for oh, I have the I, quote right here. Oh, but you those, do? But thank you for saying that. That was so inspirational and it's just, so true, and we we as adults who are these caregivers, caregivers, and we need to look inside ourselves and find that inner child and have more wonder and awe. Yes. And with that said, the quote and love, um, love, love. And love. <laughs> so here we go. Someday, after mastering the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness the energies of love. And then for the second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. Can you for the just second time that? in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> so beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, gosh, a lot to, a lot just to think about and how, how one walks through their day. Thank you, Marla. Yes. It's really wonderful to have, I don't uh, know what all kinds of things you are presenting in your po podcast, but these are the kinds of things that we need for, you know, broader education of ourselves to the potential that we have. So our task, I think, is to become what we have the potential to be. Yes, and that's part of bringing that unconsciousness into the conscious, right? Yes, that's it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. And if people want to find you, Roger, how would they do that? Um, email is the best. I mean, okay. uh, actually, let me just give the um, my website right. or the Global Consciousness Project website. It's global-mind.org. So, global-mind.org. 
Great. And there's a contact in the menu someplace, but it, you can write to me at rdnelson at princeton.edu. Great. And I will have these, this in the show notes too. And just um, quickly on another note, um, I interviewed someone um, just, just recently and she started the Global Oneness Project. Mm -hmm. And it's all about storytelling and how and bringing it into the educational world to kids. And you might want to look into it because it so goes hand in hand with with what you're doing. Yeah. Right. I am actually familiar with it. Oh, are you? Uh, yeah. Is there, uh, there is one more recommendation I'd like to make. Sure. Meditate. Yeah. There, it's the single best thing that any of us uh, can do to um, create and maintain sanity within our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Do you meditate every day? No. <laughs> <laughs> but but when, I, when I do, when I am uh, in regular practice, uh, I know that it makes a positive difference. Absolutely. It, it's profoundly uh, real. It's like um, night and day, I get more time. If I take 20 minutes out and meditate, my day becomes an hour or two longer in terms of value. Right. And you're so much more present, I find. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much and have a great <laughs> evening and I'm sure we'll be in touch. You too, Marla. Okay, thanks, Roger. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.